Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Hello, this is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me as I have another authentic conversation with a player and character in the data center industry. Hopefully you were able to download some thoughts, ideas, and knowledge that will add value to your career and your life. Note that this podcast is a labor of love for me, unsupported by advertisers so that I am able to have an uninterrupted conversation free from distractions for you or commercial obligations for me. As such, I do have one request, and that is simply that you share this podcast far and wide with your peers and throw a hashtag I love data centers if you can while sharing on social media. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of I Love Data Centers. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I have with me today Todd Murrin with Bluebird Network. He is coming to us out of a data center that's underground in Springfield, Missouri. Todd, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. You're quite welcome, Sean. Thank you. So I'm, I'm very excited to talk with you today, Todd, because you're the first person who is working for a provider that actually owns and operates a facility underground. And I know there's a lot of unique attributes to those types of facilities, which we can and will be digging into. But before I get into and we get into that topic, I'd love for our listeners to just understand how you got uh, into working in the industry and how you got into working in a, a facility that's underground. Um, so to that end, where where are you located now and you know where did you grow up and how how did you get involved in technology? Sure. That goes that we rewind and go back quite a long time. We won't go into the specifics, but uh I started off in uh, Seattle a long time ago. Uh with my parents, they moved out to a farm in the Midwest in the we'll call it the mid seventies. Um Vast difference, suburbia to working, and I do mean working, on a farm. But in the mix of all of that, in the uh, you know middle middle teenage years, really have an, an aptitude and a, a predilection for electronics. So it was buying Heathkit uh, radio, shortwave radios. It developed into taking things apart uh, component-wise and building other things with those pieces and parts. About that time, I got an opportunity to, shall we say, leave the farm and go to college, which I didn't need to think twice about that, Um, with a bachelor's of science in industrial controls. At that time, what industrial controls meant were uh, CNC machines, uh, computerized numerical control machines, XY plotters for milling operations. Uh, so that's where I got a lot of my controlled um, automation things. Um, and it developed from there. That's awesome. And when you, where, where was the farm that you were on in the Midwest? It's it's in the state of Missouri. It's about eh, middle, it, kind of in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. It's cool. Gotcha. Place, really. 
So I, I grew up in Chicago, in the North Shore of Chicago, and was blessed yeah. to have both grandparents and parents that would take us on regular trips. And so we drove, I remember driving through Iowa and Missouri and Kansas, and I'm just, I still have the images in my, baked into my head of just the endless, endless um, <laughs> waves of grain, right? Uh, yeah. And corn and whatnot that just seemed to go on forever. Um, hours and hours and hours of driving with the same scenery of farm after farm after farm. You know, to some that's that's a delight. To some, you go, man, when is this over? I get it. Uh, yeah, it's called the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm I'm a fellow Midwesterner, uh, and I don't know if you consider yourself one being born in in Seattle, but uh, I think there's I, a unique. I think we're a unique breed in in the world. I I absolutely do. It's it's a mindset. It's it's a, yeah, I'm not going to say calmer, but it's a, it's a mindset. It's like um, um, like no place I've lived before. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, that hard work on the farm, I'm sure, has led to a lot of positive um, professional attributes uh, throughout your career. But one of the fun things I noted in your, in your background is you work for the Union Pacific Railroad, uh, which I find interesting because I will always remember being told that uh, the fiber, if you, if you go to the major rail lines and you go, I think it's like five or six feet uh, to one side and a few feet down, you'll be able to hit a lot of the, the fiber optic cable that runs all over uh, this great country. Um, is that how, were, were you involved yeah. in the deployment or, or any of that piece or what were you doing with the, with the railroad? Dude, you absolutely nailed it. It would be six foot from the track and three foot down. And uh, yes, when I finished up uh, my uh, degree, my bachelor's of science degree, uh, I really wanted to build robots for Disney. But the railroad came through and they said, hey, we want you to come work for us. And strangely enough, uh, one of the first jobs that I had was uh, laying fiber between St. Louis and Chicago. So there's our connection for this company called Microwave Communications Incorporated. Now, most of the listeners are probably going to recognize it by its letters, MCI. And that was some of the first. It was actually a a microwave link that they were taking, and they had successfully negotiated with the railroad. So, yeah, that's where the networking aspect of it started. And that was a long time ago, Haas. And when just for uh, my own knowledge and, and education here when the railroads were deploying this fiber uh and entrenching it and laying it were the with the likes of mci and others effectively paying rent to the the major um i guess real estate uh owners who own the rail because union well, pacific owns do they own i guess that's a better question do they own the real estate that the rails are on, or are they leasing that from the government or other entities? Well, you know, if you ask too many more questions like that, we're going to need to get an attorney on the line here. (laughs) It's for a railroad. It's really complicated. Because if you go back to the original, the the government uh, basically condemned the railroad rights away so that we could build this national rail system. So, you know, to the landowners, remember that whole Midwest miles mm-hmm. and miles of cornfield to the, to the landowners that basically lost part of the land for the railroad. 
you know, there's some real hard feelings about that. So, and, and, and perspective is, is incredible. And that is the same, it's the same way today. Um, At the time, railroad, we had, uh, we had two and six gig microwave, and you probably may or may not know what that means. But at that time, you know, 60% of the internal traffic for the railroad was voice, and 40% of it was data. Now, I'm really going to date myself now. When we're talking about the railroad's data, we're talking about 4,800 bit per second, 9,600 bit per second modem links. Mm. Their perspective was, you know, we we don't need to own the fiber, but if during that time, if the sprints and the MCIs would give us two of the 12 strands of glass that they were putting in, they could own it. That's more than we'll ever need. Wow. You see how that turned, you see how that turned out? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the fiber itself, the sheath is owned by the carrier. The carrier has a long-term agreement to be in the railroad right-of-way, and that is with the, with the railroad. But um, quite honestly, the, they just, you know, it's that mindset where we're, we transport goods and materials and, and uh, we don't, we'll just, we'll just take two strands. It's like, wow, boy, was that a major mistake? Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And then the, uh, the other interesting piece that I noticed is when you were working for the city utilities of Springfield uh, and building out their own broadband services and, and connectivity services, I think that's, I saw that happen in uh, San Lorenzo in California Mm -hmm. when I was working out of the Bay Area. And there were a handful of other cities that were exploring what that would look like. Uh, Santa Clara, for example, has their own Santa Clara uh, fiber rings all over the city that they monetize and do, you know, they make a significant amount of money uh, leveraging those networks and reselling it to the different data center providers that are all over um, that region. That's a very unique thing for a city to be that um, I guess progressive and forward thinking in terms of the value of those of those utilities and assets. What what was the thought process there? Were you just piggybacking off of what you learned working at the railroad, or walk us through well, that story? Um, we'll, we'll touch on that. The you know my role at the railroad was was the long haul stuff. So it was the St. Louis to Chicago. Uh, you know. St. Louis, Kansas City, Kansas City, Denver, those kinds of things. Um, in in playing a part in operating the railroads network, the weak link in the chain was always, always the local loop. Now you got to think about this. You got to rewind back to the early '80s. The local loop were the Bell operating companies. So at about the time when I did a gear shift and left, if you will, the long haul aspect of it and went to a a local utility. Quite frankly, that was the thought process. It's like, man, this just got deregulated by the federal government in 82. It didn't really start happening until 83. You saw the mistake that the railroad made, which was, man, you gave the farm away because you didn't know what you had. So from a utility standpoint, and, and guess what? 
There are utilities all over this country. And to be fair, there, you know, there's electric, gas, water, telephone. What tools do you have in your bag and what can you use to do something new and different with? Because that's the mistake the railroad made. So I came to Springfield. It's like, guys, you're a multidisciplined utility. You're an electric utility, you're a gas utility, you're a water utility. And the unique thing about utilities back then is they operate a monopoly. They have a territory. You got to stay in that territory, but there's an there's a value statement on the other side, which is nobody can come into your territory. Anybody needs gas, water, electric, they gotta buy it from you. You have a lot of tools in your tool bag. You got poles, you got right of way, you've got people that know how to do things in the right of way. Um, you should give serious consideration to what's happening right now, and that's the fiber. And uh, and that's essentially, you know, your CLEC industry, where it started from. Gotcha. And was there pushback by the city at all? Did they understand what you were trying to do? Or? Well, okay, so we, we need to be very, I need to be, no, we need to be very careful here. <laughs> that for a, for a, for a municipally owned utility, now we're getting into the, okay, wait a minute. So there are different kinds of utilities. Yeah, there are three different kinds of utilities. There's the investor owned utilities. Um, there are the cooperatives typically in the rural areas. And then in small pockets, and I think there's like 60 nationwide, 60 or 70 of them, they're municipally owned. Um, municipally owned means it's owned by the government. Okay, so was there pushback? Absolutely. Um, and you know, you, you either, you have a perspective on this, either it's good or no, that's not something we want the government to be in. Um, having done that and developed that network, and now getting some distance from it and looking back on it, um, I can't argue with the fact that the resources available, poles, rights of way, people, wheeled vehicles, you've got an incredible employee base right there in the community, can't argue with that. But because of its ownership, it's very, very, very limited. I'll give you a perfect example. And a place um, place uh, um, between you and I, between here, well, not, not now, but when you were in Chicago, you know where Alton, Illinois is, right? I don't actually. Oh, well, it's just outside of St. Louis on the Illinois side. Okay. There was a company, there was a company interested in, in, um, in doing business with us. So we actually went to Alton, Illinois and had a conversation with them. Here's, here's, the, here's where it doesn't work for a municipally owned utility. Remember that whole, we have a territory and that's where we do business. So from a network providing standpoint, wait a minute, what are you doing in Alton, Illinois, man? That is not our territory. Yeah. So it, it has some real complications from from taking it and and quite frankly these these municipally owned networks you're seeing a lot of the challenge for them is connecting with other networks and if you're not careful 
it ends up being an island. Mm-hmm. And we know and we know how well a, a network operates when it's an island and it's not interconnected with anything else. So um anyway, you know, lots learned there. Um and quite frankly, that's and and hopefully we'll get to it in the conversation. And I see this happening, and that has that's code for I'm I'm getting old. I'm not old, I'm getting old. You you kind of step back and you look at the bigger picture and you're seeing this this blending and melting together of networks and data centers. Because a user community, it's an app on the phone for all intents and purposes, and they really don't care, relatively speaking, where it's at. It just needs to be able to always work. And either of those links in the chain break, and it doesn't. Well, let, let's dig into that because Zayo, CenturyLink, Verizon, AT&T, mm-hmm. the big dogs, right? The big network providers yep. um, all at some point went out and bought, acquired, built their own data centers uh, that were not just the COs that were in the different local yes. rural communities, but they actually built and, and bought companies that owned and managed big production facilities, co-location facilities. But almost all of them have systematically gone about uh, selling those assets to private equity or spinning them out or, uh, you know, selling them to other data center companies. And the reason for it primarily is because they realize two things. One, for every dollar they invest into their network, they're seeing a much higher return than the dollar invested in the data center. So they're trying, you know, to quote unquote, do right by their shareholders uh, from that perspective. But the other piece is selling data center and hosting services is an entirely different language than selling connectivity and network services. And I totally agree that there's a blend uh, in a, a lot of those functionalities, but from a salesman's perspective and having consulted now with about a half a dozen different uh, regional companies like, like yourself, um, we're seeing that the, the traditional ISPs that you know thought it'd be a good idea to, to buy a data center company and that their sales reps could just start selling hosting and data center services have learned the hard way that that's actually not possible and that it's it, it's almost impossible to train someone who's been selling carrier services for a very long time to start selling data and hosting. Um, and I, I'm bringing that all in to say that it's not impossible for regional smaller companies that are not uh, on that national scale or global scale to be able to do this if they have that messaging correct um, and if they're, you know, the money situation for those companies is different than it is for the big multi multi billion you know global carriers uh, who who have a lot of other factors that they need to be aware of. So, what, what has been your experience as it relates to to that conversation? You know, you guys selling both carrier and data center services, combining the two, uh, has that been successful? And how how if it has been, how what's made it successful? Okay, so the things you said are correct. It, it commands an open-mindedness and it commands a broader view of what do you want to be? What do you want to offer? And that's, it is, that is a steep hill to climb. Um, I don't want to turn this into a commercial for Bluebird, but I, I, we're seeing to be successful in this market, it is, it is, we're focusing on those blended things that we can offer. Um, I say things, that's kind of vague and I apologize. 
those blended services that, that bring the attributes of the network together and bring the attributes of the data center together. Uh, and we're, we're seeing some take on those things. Um, my, I am seeing a shift where not too many people enterprise desire to do stick builds anymore. It's, it's a one-stop shop. What can you do for me? Almost a plug and play thing. And if you don't have the tools to be able to do that, then you're pretty much destined to be either ISO network or ISO data center. But we're a small player. Uh, we're, by some measures, you could consider a niche player in the Midwest because that's where our resources lie. Um, quite frankly, I think if you can if you can get that recipe right, there's plenty of opportunity. And I would back that up. We just we're coming off of an eleven million dollar expansion. When I say coming off of, it's it's finishing up the end of September, and it has been a fifteen month project. So the investment is there. Uh, I believe the recipe is there. Uh, we're seeing from the mark sales and marketing side. Here here come these new, if you will, products or services. And guess what? They're a little bit network and they're a little bit data center. I'm pleased. So let's let's back into that. The the facility okay. itself. Can you walk me through what what's the size and scope of the of the facility? And I guess what's the background okay. of of the property? Uh, um, okay, so background of the property. Um, Boy, you got to be careful, man. I can jump off. We can get wrapped around the axle real quick and easy here. It's um, all right. We, we got time, man. Tell, tell the story. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, this, the place I'm at, is a is a approximately a five million square foot uh, mine, limestone mine, uh, inactive. That's key. Uh, so, five million square feet. Guess what? I don't need to build walls and ceilings. So I'm already from a from a cost of capital construction cost, I don't have to build walled ceilings and floors. That comes, that's just part of the territory. Now, five million square feet, you can not you can. They I followed one in this morning. Semi trucks drive into this place, got railroad access into this place. It's huge. About half of that 5 million square feet is for the roads, if you will, and it's privately owned. So guess what? Can't scope the place out on Street View or Google Earth. Google Earth's just going to show you a green pasture. Um, we, Bluebird Underground, we're 80,000 square feet data center in the underground. That's our little section we operate in. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to back up and talk about why we're here. Yeah, I'd love to hear that story. Uh, good. I would love to tell you that story. So we earlier, previously, built a 5,000 square foot above ground data center for an enterprise customer previously. Um, you know what? A great building. Uh, above ground pre-stressed concrete, on-site generators, you know, uh, F4 proof, tornado, uh, everything's great. 
extremely expensive. Uh, but as, as we constructed this project, it's like, wait a minute, there are all kinds of holes in this design that have to be there. It's a building. Yeah. It's got to have a door, right? Otherwise, it's a box. We're putting electronic stuff in it. So how about that door? Is that door tornado-proof? Well, you know, I guess we could get a bank vault kind of door. The other thing is to protect generators and chilling. Because if it's a data center, it's not much of a data center if it, can't have, if it doesn't have power or it's not, it doesn't have the ability to cool. So all of a sudden, those those elements have got to be protected. <clears throat> Generators and chillers, they have to breathe. It's called intake and exhaust. Okay, so what are your intake and exhaust structures like? Are they F4 proof? Well, no, they're not. Okay, so now you're getting this Swiss cheese idea here where it's like, man, it's a heck of a building. But it's there are things that we have no control over, we have to have, uh, that are compromising the integrity of it. And no data center wants to, you got to have that mission critical mindset where we have to do everything we can to prevent anything unexpected from happening. So we finished up with that project and it's like, you know what? There has got to be a better way. And that's how we ended up here. How So how long ago was that when you started hunting for uh, that's the space that you're in now. Uh, is that that idea? Uh, hap, uh, that idea started in it was either late 1999 or early 2000. And so you know we had a design, we had a place, we found this mine, we, we had a we had a design, and September 11th happened. You know what? We scrapped our whole design. And and that was probably the smartest thing we ever did, because from a design standpoint, those generators and chillers, they operate much better on the surface. Remember that whole breathing concept? Mm -hmm. Protect them, but they operate after September 11th. It's like, guys, this place has got to be impenetrable. And for a data center, that includes the electrical and the mechanical or the cooling aspects of it. So we brought, we redesigned and we brought all generation, all fuel storage, all utility interfaces, all chilled water systems underground with us. It had some really cool engineering challenges, but at the end of the day, this has turned out to be extremely well for us. Because now from a cooling operation, the mine is, the, the let's see, we checked this in 2018. We did a whole full 12 months. What is the air intake? And for the 12 month, it, it, it ran between 59 degrees and 64 degrees. That's the temperature that we chilled down from 12 months out of the year. So today, it's going to hit about 90, not down here. It's probably about 63 degrees, something like that. Uh, we're Midwest. You know yourself. We have the luxury of not having to worry about hurricanes. But we've got these really small, intense things. They're kind of sort of like hurricanes. 
called tornadoes. Yeah. It's not a worry here. So if you step back and you look at data center design, there are things that you can, with that mission critical mindset, there are things that you can design for to protect yourself. And then guess what? There are things that are out of your control. And that would be, well, that would be natural and unfortunately unnatural events. So let's let's get to that. Let's get to the natural and unnatural events that are unique to to that facility. But before we do, I just have some basic questions around yeah. the the cooling, right? So understand you're you're yeah. far below ground, so you can leverage a lot of free cooling. But where does the exhaust go for both the cooling and or the generators if if they're running or, or you're testing them? Hey, man, that is a great question. Uh, you're on top of things. Um, we have a uh, uh, as part of the original design, because our plans were to were to grow, and I'm thankful for that because we are we have grown, uh, is to not run that exhaust back out into the underground. A lot of different ways to say this, but we don't want to spoil the environment for future development. So mm-hmm. we have a thir- we have a 13 foot hole to the surface, and that is where the hot humid air is blown to the surface. So we're constantly drawing from that cool mine air and exhausting it to the surface. Gotcha. And then just to clarify something, you had mentioned early on that the mine was active or inactive? It at early on, it was active, which was wow. a cool thing. If you like roller coasters, because they would blast every day, two to four. Right. And and like I said, it was great. But in 2000, and uh, I think it was 18, the fall of 2018, they ceased mine operations for the for the uh, for the limestone. And the vibrations from those blasts didn't affect the facility. Actually, that is a really great question too. When we did the original design, uh, now you would think, oh, so you we placed. Uh, and then they're not seismographs that measure uh, frequency of earthquakes, but we actually took readings on that before we got into this business. Earthquakes tend to be low frequency vibrations. A blast is an intense higher frequency, and no, you have no movement. Now, what you have, and you will swear you felt the earth move when you when you were standing out outside and you could you could hear the blast, but it is the tremendous movement of air, but it mm. is zero movement of the ground. Gotcha. Okay, so that makes sense. When you when you were um, building out the facility, did you have to do a lot of net new, I guess, carving into the limestone to create the the space available to to be available for? the data center floor and whatever offices and security and whatnot you have, or was that already pre pre done? That was, uh, we're thankful to some other forward thinking individuals that own the mine because they too realize they look deep in their bag of tools and go, okay, here's, here's what we've done for four generations, man. We blast out limestone. We turn it into little rocks and they turn it into asphalt and they turn it into concrete. But when we're done, what do we want to do with this place? Well, it's an underground mine. So part of their design was, you know what? Leave the columns a little 
a little larger, leave the amount of rock on the surface a little thicker because we have a warehouse goal. That's what we want this place to be when it's an inactive mine. And that's when we came back around, it's like, wait a minute, an underground warehouse. Okay, so you warehouse parts and food and all of that. I want to warehouse bits. I can I can I can put a whole lot more bits in this place than you can radiators or alternators for cars. And that's that's that whole warehousing thing. Uh, that's where it came from. Yeah. And I know um, Iron Mountain uh, has been obviously in that business for a long time, uh, warehousing, you know, tape drives and whatnot. And they've just recently yeah. gotten into the data center space. But um, but that's a whole other side story. So what, what are some of the unique characteristics that this underground data center has that may be a little bit uh, different than the traditional above ground facilities or or just different in general than a, a traditional facility? Like, what are you dealing with on a day-to-day that's unique? Right. Another, uh, uh, another very insightful question. You know, there's a lot of, let's talk about geology, okay? Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute, where's this going? Uh, you were located in southwest Missouri. We, we specifically Springfield. This is not an area where there are identifiable either tectonic plates or faults in the Earth's surface. That's code for earthquakes. We're in a very stable area. As a matter of fact, from the state and federal government, this is identified as a as a recovery location for the Midwest, mainly because of the New Madrid fault that is the St. Louis Mississippi River South thing. Um, the other thing is, is elevation. Now let's, we're not talking Rocky mountain elevation here where this is the Ozark mountains. So, so a, the highest peak in Missouri is 1700 feet. So all your listeners that are out in the Rockies can laugh at me for that. That's fine. But it, this is a high elevation, uh, relatively speaking. And when you go underground, the other aspect is, well, what about flooding? Well, high elevation. Now you look at the specifically this Springfield, Missouri. Springfield is unlike a Kansas City or a St. Louis. Those those cities were founded on navigable rivers, way, way, way back for fur trading reasons. Springfield was is not, and that is your greatest potential source for flooding or natural waterways. We don't have that. So it's like, okay, so let's take inventory here. No earthquakes, no flooding. Um, this is looking good. And, and you know, heavy, those, those biblical rains, uh, this is a high point. And we all know the water runs away from high points. So it's a good location for an underground mine. Now, let's talk about rock. Guess what? There are all different kinds of rock, dolomite, limestone, granite. Even within the realm of mines, this is a very, very resilient mine because of how limestone, if you'll allow me, how limestone grows. This this is Burlington limestone, so it's anywhere from 250 to 300 million years ago. We used to be ocean bed. 
And for any of your listeners that want to come down here, I can show them fossils. We're 85 feet deep, and I can show them fossils in the rock above me um, of seashells. Okay, limestone tends to grow in layers over time. So it has the it has the tensile strength attributes of say a piece of plywood versus just a two by four. A two by four, you and I could easily break a little leverage. We can easily break one. You have a really hard time breaking a four by eight sheet of plywood. So from a rock standpoint, it, it's extremely resilient. Then you kind of drill down on the the attributes of being underground. Um, and you may go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time hanging on to this. Um, because it is a mine, the federal government has um, obviously rules and regulations, much like OSHA, except it's called MOSHA, mine safety, as far as you have to, the mine has to move so many cubic feet of air through it all the time. And that, that amount of air uh, varies depending on whether it's an active or inactive. But the point is, so much air has to move through the mine. Okay, so you've got a designed airflow. It always comes from the east to the west. So from a data center operation, my wind direction is always the same. And I situate my intake for that wind direction. It never changes. And it's, relatively speaking, always the same temperature. So now you, you get off into the, the mechanical operations. We are a chilled water system, a, 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 a sealed chilled water system with chillers. So we're not going through millions of gallons of water. It is, it's, we recirculate. And that that has turned out to be a very good attribute because water is that is becoming a resource that we're running out of certainly mm -hmm. globally. Um, so anyway, um, we operate our our chillers have got a sweet spot. Yes, a chiller. You know our chillers our our stuff is just like any other data center stuff, but how we use it is different. Chillers. They've got sweet spots. Can they operate at, at minus 10? Yes, they can. Or do they produce all the tonnage of cooling? No, not at minus 10. Will those chillers operate at 104 degrees? Yes, they can. Will they produce their tonnage? No, not at those extremes. But at 60, 64, 63, 62, it's the sweet spot for operations. Mm. Sweet spot is economical. It's economical for me. It's economical for our customers because we sell a, and that's kind of weird, but we sell a measured power service down here. So anything I can do economically to keep my shareholders happy also helps out our customers because down right. here, it's just like at your house, kilowatt hour. I used 500 kilowatt hours. Next month, I'm going to use 400. Your bill is going to be lower next month because you only use 400. You only pay for what you use. So our chillers are operating. Let's touch on that. Where, where are you pulling power from right now? Um, we, we, well, like from everybody else, from the electric grid. So we've got three different utility services that come in here. Another, uh, another uh, 
uniqueness to our service is typically, you know, you pull power from the grid, the utility owns the transformer, you do your transformation and you pull everything downstream at 480 volt. We have purchased our power from the utility at, um, it's called primary metering is what it's called. We buy power at 13,200 volts. We own the transformers and guess where the transformers are? They're underground with us. So recovery in in an unlikely event of that, that tornado up above ground, it's poles and wires and that's it. The expensive and the long lead time utility transformer is underground with us. We own it and then we take it and from the 13,200 volts all the way to the 480 and the 208 and the 120, which is an interesting ride. That's, that's been fun in this last uh, expansion. So what's, but, uh, what's your so average cost of power now in that, in that market? Because it varies over all the different cities across the country to as low as, you know, two cents or sub two yeah. cents a kilowatt hour to as high as 18 cents in places like Manhattan. Um, yeah. So what are you looking at in Springfield? Well, I would love if we were, we were sub two cents, that would be great. We're, yeah. not, we're, we're around that six cents and you would go, wow, geez, man, that's not too great for, you know, there's always somebody that's got lower power. You've got the Pacific Northwest where you typically, where you've got all the, uh, right. all the uh, water, uh, not water, I can't think of it, but anyway, that's, our main incentive for a measured service. So you only pay for the amount of power that you use. Um, and you know what it is, what it is, because that with the exception of a few states, power is still a monopoly. It's still a regulated utility. So wherever your data center is, you get one power company and that's it. Now, yeah. Is the are the Google Azure's and and uh, Amazon's? No, they're 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 playing out on the on the transmission market, and as as is the case, they can pretty much do what they want to do. So the type of customer that you're working with out of that facility or or inside that facility uh, out of Springfield, are they finding you for disaster recovery primarily? Um, and I know, so I've spent a lot of time digging into the tier two, tier three markets because I'm actually in the middle of uh, raising a fund right now to to go after and acquire a handful of assets in those markets. Uh, so this conversation is actually very interesting on a variety of levels. But so walk me through what that what that looks like for you and when you're going out into the market because. There, you know, I know there are a lot of very big businesses in and around, you know, rural communities of, mm -hmm. of Missouri and all over the U.S. that, you know, most people <laughs> like Pennsylvania. Uh, I joke, I, I was going into to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and people were like, Lancaster, what the hell is in Lancaster? Uh, but when you look up the companies that are in and around that area in Pennsylvania, there's multi global, multi-billion dollar companies that operate out of that, that out of that region. Mm -hmm. Um, is there that similar dynamic where the demand is coming from or is your, are your customers coming from looking for DR outside of St. Louis and Chicago and whatnot? Well, so it, wow. I wish there was one, well, maybe, maybe not. I wish there would, you know, for you it'd be, there was, here's the answer. Boom. One mm -hmm. simple answer. That is, that truly is not the case. So let's chase a couple rabbits here. Do we have the DR element? We certainly do. 
quite honestly, that over the years, and so, you know, we'll just go ahead and announce it here. I've, I've uh, almost 20 years underground. Okay. So it's a long time. Over the years. You do leave would, the underground facility, right? You do come above ground every now and again. Uh, you mean when I go home at night? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'll tell you what, it gives you a great perspective on the day when you come out of the underground and you go, oh man, that blue sky looks nice. Yeah, I know with everything going on in the world right now, there's a lot more people that are looking into, you know, bunkers to to hide in yeah. in case the apocalypse, you know, comes. But uh, yeah. I, I didn't know if maybe yeah. you had a, a facility underground that you were living living out of too. I was talking to you. <laughs> um, so anyway, so the the DR component is is, in my opinion, my humble opinion, is becoming less of a deal. Um, so we have we still have some of that component. We have the we we and let's. So let me just, you know, full disclose, here's what we do. We're colo, we're space power and cooling. That's what we do. That's what we do well. And actually, there would be some that would look at that and go, well, dude, you're leaving an awful lot on the table that you're, you know, I know, I know. But guess what? We don't do those things well. These are the things that we do, space power and cooling. And regardless of what you have operating here, whether it be DR, whether it's just one of many sites, whether it's a secondary site where non-critical applications are running, in in our Maslow hierarchy of needs, we're space power and cooling. It's all mission critical because there's no power there. It's not cooling. I don't care what it is. It's not up. So we have the DR. We have the 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 traditional enterprise, and contrary to what what what. Maybe some would think, oh, my gosh, everything's going to the cloud. That is not the case. There are some things that the cloud's perfect for, and there are some things that ought to be on the cloud, and then there are some things that will never be on the cloud. So, so you've, got, you've got that component. You've got the enterprise component. We have some large global customers here, and and without sharing any specifics, I think it's, it is my belief that it is the protection factor. Uh, and I didn't say necessarily disaster recovery because I know they're operating out of here, but it's that, you know what, man, this is just a real, you know, you play cards, uh, depending on what cards you play, you know, this is like having that ace or having that wild card. This is a really good thing to have in our repertoire of of resources and underground data center all things go bad now we got this underground data center the the thing that and and quite frankly it can get very confusing because of all the different alphabet soup of dot 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 as a service whether it's infrastructure whether it's hardware whether it's you know i don't i don't know don't really care but the thing that that I'm seeing the, the biggest growth opportunity in are those I'll generically call them managed service providers, whether they're hosting, whether they're whether they're software hosting application, because this place shows well for them. I can't begin to tell you how many times they'll bring a client in here and go look around. And if you've ever been if you've never been underground, you have that that disease that's called the wow factor. 
because the minute you drive into this hole in the ground, you're, you're just like, whoa. And it just continually gets more and more impressive the closer you get to the data center because we're, we're not at the front door. Uh, we're way back in the corner. Um, the largest growth I see is from what I would, what I would classify as the managed service provider. In other words, they have the retail component. We don't. Gotcha. And that, that makes sense. That's what I'm seeing uh, across the country. And it, a lot of people write off those MSPs and they think they're all going to be taken over by Rackspace or Rack or uh, Amazon yeah. in, in some capacity. But I think people discount how much high touch is required for most businesses on the IT side. And it's going to, you know, there will always be demand for the thousands of managed service providers that are working in cities all over the world. I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you that because there is that if you've ever had a bad experience, because we've had some folks that go, hey, look, I want to, I need to take back part of my stuff from the cloud and, and I've got to have somebody to to take care of it, whatever that means. But, you know, you blend in that and then the whole edge data center concept, because we're in the Midwest, you know, where's your content at? Uh, which direction is it? Or is it eyeball traffic and get it as close as you can? And, and more times than not, I've described our place as more of a boutique data center. And you know what? There's plenty of there's plenty of room for that, and there will always be, in my opinion. About the the network strategy and points of entry, and you know, do do you have network that goes back to 350 Cermak in Chicago or or any of the other carrier exchanges in the region? What what does that play look like out of that facility? How have you architected it? Um. Okay. So that's remember our conversation. We said you know I'm beginning to see this blending of you know, the co the colo is one link in the chain. The network is another link in the chain. And you nailed it with that question right there. Yes, we have we have connectivity to or to the very I'll call them traditional uh, like 350 CERMAC uh, connections to those uh, points of presence. And uh, without with, I'm always cautious of not turning this into commercial, but we've got a a blended product where if you live here. You have a virtual presence at those locations. It's part of the deal. It's part of the package because you know what? For most case, in most cases, that is a need, or it's a benefit, or it's a value. Um, another one is is exchange points. You know, you've got your larger customers, got their who who don't mind. You know, let me back up. You've got your larger customers. They've got an ASN and they don't mind running BGP. Uh, we've got an exchange point here. That's um, that is once again just a value-oriented kind of thing. And then we've got uh, some Cloud Connect services because, yeah, nobody gets the whole pie these days. You here's here's my slice, and I'm gonna pile on the ice cream, and I'm gonna add as much value as I can to it. But these other things still exist, and man, that's where the network aspect of it comes in. But your management's got to have the mindset. If you don't have the mindset and you don't have educated sales, they can't talk that because it's it's two conversation threads. When you're talking to a customer, you need to be able to talk network. I get it. But then at some point when you start talking about colo or, or these, guess what? In most organizations, 
that's a different group of people or a different person. That's the IT side. And there is a difference. Yeah, definitely. And so getting into the specifics of what other carriers, like do you have a diversity of carriers that are landing inside that facility? Uh, we do. So diversity of carriers, there are those that own their own cable sheath. I'm kind of a nuts and bolts guy. So there are, we have multiple carriers that own their own cable sheath, their own fiber cable. And then we have carrier presence here that lease dark fiber into the facility. Obviously, we've got the Bluebird network component here and well represented. Um, would love to have more carriers present here. And that's probably one of the things early on when these large players uh, started buying data centers that came with this, this mindset of, dude, only my network. You know, that doesn't work so well. Customers that move into co-op facilities, whether they're an MSP or whether they're an enterprise, they like choices. You know, you can win their business, but don't win their business because you're the only game in town. That's not how this works. Yeah, it's basically table stakes now for data center providers to have diverse carriers on-prem. It, it used to be when I got started in the industry in like 2005, providers were trying to leverage that capability as this big marketing tool, but nearly everybody right now has has that as an option. It's not a single home, you know, AT&T they, or CenturyLink or whatever. They, they absolutely, we want them to um, because that makes them happier here. You know, that's one of the things that I've emphasized with, with our, with our network operations and our sales. It's like, look guys, this is this, you know, when you're, i uh, got to be careful here, get off on a tangent. But when I'm in the network business, I'm I'm selling, if you will, spokes on this wheel. And, and it's just connecting this location, this regional to headquarters, or it's connecting this to a, to a, a regional sales office. But when you get into the data center business, you're not dealing in spokes anymore. You're operating the hub. So when a customer puts their stuff here, we have to remain up. Now, up means power. Yeah, we've talked that to death. And cooling, yeah, we've talked that to death. But it also means that network component. Because guess what? It's that whole chain and a link. When that link breaks, guess what? No part of the chain works. Well, when that network link breaks and they can't get to their app, it doesn't matter what caused it to go away. It's just gone away. So diversity is extremely important. So what what is the specific Cloud Connect strategy that you guys are leveraging? Are you using like a, a Megaport or are you using the, the Equinix Cloud Exchange once people get back to 350? Or what, what does that look like for you? Dude, you're batting a thousand. You nailed it. Uh, it's with Megaport. Gotcha. And they don't have a, uh, do they have infrastructure physically inside your facility or you're just connecting to them back in, in one of the carrier hotels? We, we take our customers, if they say, hey, that's what I need. I need to this cloud and I need, I need to get connected. As part of the product here, we'll take them all the way to that train station, so to speak, and go, okay, here you are. Gotcha. Great. Cool. So what, are there any other questions I haven't asked that maybe I should have asked that are specific to an underground, you know, bunker uh, facility? 
Um, let's see. Well, it, let me delve into this one. So you mentioned an eleven million dollar expansion project. Uh, yeah. What what does an expansion project like that? Uh, equate to when you're underground? Did you have to do some more digging and, and mining and, and building out? Like how, how do you do that project underground? Um, so that $11 million, a portion of that, uh, approximately two of the 11 was additional white space. We're just out of, we're just in a data center from this data center. I've got, I've got three capacity knobs. I've got the, do I have enough cooling knob? Do I have enough power knob? And do I have enough white space, raised floor, whatever you want to call it, knob? Uh, so po a portion of that $11 million was cranking up the white space knob. Uh, there was a, there was some efficiency improvements made on the, do I have enough cooling knob? Not much, not much, south of a half million. The bulk of it, or the rest of it was all power. That that knob we were we were at capacity. Uh, and obviously, I don't care who you are. If you run out of any one of those capacities, you're not. You know, growth is a difficult thing to accommodate at that point. So the bulk of this was an electrical up. Uh, I don't even really want to call it an upgrade because we did some serious changes. Um, kind of open heart surgery kind of stuff. Um, it, uh, let's see here, tripled our generating capacity, easily tripled our fuel storage. Uh, now we have the ability to parallel generator. Previously, we did not. Uh, brand new switch gear on uh, up a brand new data center information management system which is absolutely cool. I mean, if you think about it, now, now we're getting to the, you know, almost the internet of things, except not on the internet. In an operating data center, we have close to, last time we looked at this, which was I think last week, we have over 15,000 points that we're collecting data on. It may be temperature, it may be water flow, it may be quantity, it may be uh, cubic feet per minute of air, it may be voltage, it, it may be current. 15,000, a relatively small data center. You know, like I said, we're, we're in an 80,000 square foot corner of the mine. But, and we collect that information every five minutes in most cases, some of it's continual. Um, you can really, I mean, this is a it's a well-tuned, high-performance machine, and that's that's fun. Now we're getting back to that whole electronics, taking stuff apart and building it, building other things out of its parts. Yeah, I mean, a data center is just a, a really big. Um, I, I like to call it a you know the the brain for the brand new digital world that we live in today. Um, I, when, I agree. When you were doing the um, power upgrades. How how were you able to keep your existing customers live and running while also doing all that additional, um, you know, basically adding components to the internal grid power grid? You know, we um, I'll leave the names out, but it apt it it requires some really smart power engineers, electrical engineers, and an excellent 
electrical sub because uh, you're exactly right. Doing that without causing any interruption in power because that's that, and I know I made this comment earlier. It's a whole lot easier to build a brand new greenfield data center than it is to upgrade an existing one because I'm not going to mistreat my customers. And mistreating is those space power cooling knobs. We're not we're not messing with those. Uh, so keep them on. Um, it it um, you know and you know we we were messing with uh, four, let's see three four and six thousand amp buses at four eighty volts and uh, thankfully um, that is uh, that's that's in the rearview mirror we were successful yeah that's no joke congratulate you and the the team that pulled that off um, from a so you mentioned that you guys bill out on a metered power basis, which um, for those who are listening means there's not just a flat rate all in, you know, commit dollar per KW. Uh, you know, so if, if someone needs two cabinets mm-hmm. and they need five, five kilowatts per cabinet, they would commit to 10 KW times whatever the rate is. You know, let's just say it's $200 yeah. and it would be $2,000 uh, for the 10 KW then. You're, you're charging uh, for basically utilization times a PUE uh, plus, you know, the rent for the square footage of the, of the space, I would assume. Uh, so break that down. What would that look like for you? You mentioned it's around six cents kilowatt hour. Um, what does the PUE look like inside the, the facility? Our, our PUE is ranges between 1.6 and 1.7. On a, on a 12 month, you know, we, we keep, we keep a very close eye on that. Um, and you're exactly correct. And, and we've got both options out there, which, you know, there are benefits to buying block power, if you will, you know, some, some customers, Hey, I need this much capacity and they'll communicate in a KW. Okay. we got that. We can be competitive in that. Here's your KW. More times than not, if and, and some are just that's it, man. Thanks, I got my answer. But it's always good to go. Hey, look, let's do the math on this. Let's take a look at this because I know that KW is your high water mark. You always want to be paying for that high water mark, even though you're not using it. I mean, I think everybody says I only want to pay for what I use. If you have the aptitude and you want to, we can do the math for you and show you. Here's your high water mark KW. Let's let's meter this, see where you're at, and here's what you would be paying if a measured service. Are there benefits to the to the block? Yeah, they are. It's this many dollars every month. I can count on it. We got a we got a 60 month contract here. Great time 60. There we go. Measured. Some go. You mean I don't know how much my power is every month? No, it will vary based on your usage. How hard are you hitting your applications? Are you an eight to five business and your stuff ramps down? Does it ramp down on weekends? That'll save you some money here. But that whole, I don't know what it's going to be, is probably the biggest negative to a measured service. As strange as that sounds, it's the fear of the unknown, I suppose. But we can do both. Yeah. Yeah, that's always a fun conversation that sales and facilities have because facilities doesn't want sales basically getting customers to commit to a bunch of power that they're not going to use because then it's 
basically has to be reserved and taken offline and it's, can't be resold exactly. by their customers. Yeah. But sales exactly. obviously wants their customers to commit to as much as possible so that they can get their, you know, quota retirement and commissions. And those, are, those are always some very interesting conversations. You obviously you're experienced in this business. Yeah, this is, this is what I eat, live, breathe and, and sleep. That's why I have a podcast called I love data centers. I was going to say, that's why you've named it. I love data centers. Yeah. Um, well, a couple of questions that I'd also love to ask you, uh, what, in your experience in the industry, as you're talking to new people that are coming into the data center world who have never been in it, what, what is some advice that you give them or that you would, you would give them that are brand new coming into the industry from any other, any other part of, of, um, of the industry? Things used to be a lot easier. And here's what I mean by that make a decision, okay, so this is the right solution for my business or your customer or you personally. Um, because of all of the different resources that are out there, and and I don't mean to speak code, so software-defined networks, so VM machines, so cloud, so hosting, so enterprise, there there isn't one magical answer for everything. Uh, you need to take a look at what what the needs are and find the right application for that need and then live in a place where you can get to those correct resources. Did that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, what I'm hearing you say is that it's about knowledge and gaining an understanding of all the different options that, that customers have. And whereas it used to be, you know, call, call IBM or call Accenture or SunGuard, <laughs> we'll just take care of it for you. Um, you know, now, yeah. You're, yeah, you're exactly correct. Uh, unfortunately, that's how my career started with the railroad. They sent me away to IBM for 16 weeks to learn. And this is really going to date me. Uh, SNA, Systems Network Architecture, and quite honestly, some of the philosophies separating the proprietary network, the proprietary nature of, of that architecture is alive and well today. It's just broken up into a thousand pieces and the internet plays such a big part in that. But, uh, but you're exactly right. It's um, that, that what is that old thing? Always buy blue, you can never go wrong. That's yeah. not the case anymore. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, I remember I almost got in a, an argument. Well, I did get in an argument with an EMC sales rep back when I was working for a provider out of the Bay Area, uh, who we, at you know, during the course of our conversation with him and him selling us on some new gear, new backup storage gear from EMC, we can, you know, we're able to show him some of the com competition that they were up against that had products and services that were actually, you know, more. Uh, that were better and and cost less. And the dude's like, well, you should buy from EMC because we're EMC. And I'm like, well, what is that supposed <laughs> to mean? He's like, well, you're you're yeah. not going to get fired uh, for you're never going to get fired for uh, buying EMC. And I was like, well, actually, if if we're spending two x what we need to be for the same solution, we probably will get fired. I um, will get fired. That's exactly right. Yeah, you know that's yeah. It's things things are getting more complex. Complex. Uh, what you and I could do for our customer base is kind of boil it down and and 
and uh, to make the right decision, you have to be knowledgeable or you have to associate with somebody that's knowledgeable. And, uh, and that, well, you'll never go wrong if you buy. I'm sorry, those days are over. Yeah, they definitely are. Um, but you, you actually just hit on what if you, you know, not knowing is fine so long as you know the person who does know. <laughs> and so, you know, early out of my career, I attached myself at the hip to all of the facilities engineers and um, uh, network engineers and it, all the different sales engineers that I had that were supporting me. Uh, and would just drill them with questions nonstop and would, you know, constantly be taking notes on calls and asking them after the call, like you said, this, this, and this, what the hell does that mean? You know, how is that going to help the customer? Well, and, and you know, that's where it starts listening to what people say. Uh, you can pick up and get more educated yourself, or you can pick up and go, Hey, you know what? That was so incredibly wrong, but you have to listen. And then you got to want to know. and. Uh, and I don't you know what's that old saying? The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. But you yeah. got to associate with great people and then go to them and go, hey, I really got to drill down on this question here. Can you help me out? So, similar type of question, but in the last couple of weeks or months, has there been anything that stood out to you that's made you stop uh, and, and just say, wow? You know, any kind of new technology that you've come across or, or some new experience that you had uh, that's really stopped you in your tracks? Uh, and well, maybe, yeah. great time to ask that coming off of this expansion project because there's probably been two. I'm not going to suggest that I was completely ignorant to this, but I have learned so much more than, I, you know, just when you thought you knew it. Uh, no, you didn't. And that is the on the electrical side being up to my eyebrows in the electric distribution from 13,200 kilovolts all the way down to a 120 volt AC outlet at 20 amps and everything involved in switchgear and parallel switchgear, transformer, getting everything NEDA certified, doing breaker coordination studies. Man, there is a, an incredible amount to that. And you think about it, you go, you know, and most in our industry, they just walk up to an electrical plug and plug their stuff in and go, there we go, we're good. Like, dude, you have no idea what's behind that outlet and what it takes to to reliably provide. And then the second thing is the is the DCIM or data center infrastructure management. Um, and all the as you upgrade elements. Like our chilled water pumps now have got pickup points on them. And I'm not talking pickup points like open contact, closed contact. There's a level of intelligence in water pumps these days where you can come and you can graph all of that and just, man, you talk about a racing machine. If you have the aptitude for it and the desire, and thankfully we've got all new stuff here, man, there's a, there is a there you can this is a precision it is a precision machine one of the i like that answer because one of the things i love about this industry is that you can go down any one of these rabbit holes and spend an entire lifetime living in that field and still not know everything there is to know about yeah. you know electrical systems or cooling systems or you know, thermodynamics inside those facilities or the applications running inside the facilities, you know, all of it is just, you know, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. 
We, you're, you're exactly right. We have run some what are called uh, computational fluid dynamic models to, to see how our, it's like if you could see the different temperatures of air and how they're circulating in your white space room. But then in our particular case, because everything, everything cooling is underground with us in our mechanical room, where you, you know, where you see, you, which is cool if you think about it, where you see 61 degree air coming in and turning into 89 degree air as it passes through this room that's probably 300 feet long and then going up the exhaust pipe to the surface and making sure that nothing is short cycling. In other words, where you want cold air to be, there's cold air there and not hot air. Yeah, you talk about rabbit holes. Well, Todd, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. I think this was very educational for me, as I'm sure it is for our listeners. For those who want to get in touch with Bluebird or want to get in touch with you to ask some more questions and and learn more about uh, the company, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Um, Get a hold of me is email or or call, but get get a better grasp of Bluebird and what all is available probably the best thing is the website, but I'd be more than happy to give all three of those out. Yeah. Fire away. We good with that. So bluebird, www.bluebirdnetwork, one word.com. That'll give you a a nice uh, um, menu view of everything that's available. Uh, If you choose to speak directly to me, that would be T O D D dot M U R R E N at bluebirdnetwork.com. Or you could go old school, and that would be 417-851-0200. Awesome. And then, of course, they can always come visit. It's, it's not a bad, it's not a bad uh, vacation spot. Yeah, I may actually take you up on that. My uh, wife and I, I've, okay. got th- I've got three kids that are 14, 11, and 7. Uh, and because here in North Carolina and Wake County, I won't get into the politics of it, but let's just say that they have uh, made schools virtual uh, to an indefinite, undisclosed time in the near future where they feel that, you know, they can be safe to reopen again normally, which basically means we'll probably be virtual until the election or after the election. Um, But we're, as a result, just saying, hey, that means our kids can learn from anywhere and we don't physically need to be here. So we're going to be packing up and going on some trips across the country over the next couple of weeks and months. I would I would encourage you to do so. You know, when you when you cut when you cut this deep in the earth, you can look at the last 300 million years and how this limestone has grown. And I can show you places where. We've got a like a, it's called it's in it's called a mud seam in here. It's about three inches of mud, but it's eh, probably about um, let's see about ninety feet deep. And it's like you know what that was? A, a geologist tell me they go this was ocean bed. So that was one of two things. That was either a volcanic eruption and that is volcanic ash, or it was a tsunami and that was as the tsunami because we were at the bottom of the ocean. As the tsunami was pulling, going back into the ocean and pulling all of the topsoil. So it's a great uh, geology uh, lesson. Uh, so, yeah, would encourage you bring your kids. It's like taking them back into a part of the mine that is so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face. 
Cool. 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 Yeah. Well, the, the last question, Todd, that I ask all of my interviewees is, do you love data centers? Oh, I absolutely do. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. Awesome. Well, thank you again for taking the time. I'm sure our audience will appreciate uh, hearing this interview. And you guys heard how to get a hold of Todd. And I hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you again so much for taking the time. Very good. Thanks, Sean. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.